What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Dear Flamethrowers, it is the first year anniversary of the Nasser sentencing hearings, and we wanted to dedicate today's show to the survivors. We would also like to acknowledge that interim president and former Michigan governor, John Engler, finally resigned, and now the survivors can finally start healing, as Lindsay wrote in A Peace for Think Progress. We at Burn It All Down are in solidarity with the survivors, and we are in awe of their resilience. To quote Lindsay Lemke, on the mental and physical toll that this has taken and been prolonged by people like Engler. Quote, but if we had to do victim impact statements again to keep the ball rolling, I'm trying to change the culture. I'm sure that 90% of people who are trying to make change would want to do it because that's how dedicated we are and devoted we are to trying to change the culture. Welcome to this week's episode of Burn It All Down. It's the feminist sports podcast you need. On this week's panel, we have Jessica Luther, independent writer, general slayer, and author of Unsportsmanlike Conduct, College Football and the Politics of Rape in Austin, Texas. Brenda Elsie, associate professor of history and undeniable genius at Hofstra University in Hudson's Valley, New York. The indomitable and brilliant Lindsay Gibbs, sports writer at Think Progress in Washington, D.C., and I'm Shireen Ahmed, freelance sports writer, cat lover, and soon-to-be birthday girl in <laughs> Toronto, Canada. Yay. Before, we, before we start, I would like to thank our patrons for their generous support and to remind our new flamethrowers about our Patreon campaign. You pledge a certain amount monthly, as low as $2 and as high as you want, to become an official patron of the podcast. In exchange for your monthly contribution, you get access to special rewards. With the price of a latte a month, you can get access to extra segments of the podcast, a monthly newsletter, and an opportunity to record on the borrowed pile, only available to those in our Patreon community. So far, we have been able to solidify funding for proper editing transcripts, but are really reaching hoping to reach our dream of hiring a producer to help us with the show. Burn It All Down is a labor of love, and we believe in this podcast. And having a producer to help us as we grow would be amazing. And we are so grateful for your support. This week's show, number 90, we will be discussing coaching. Women in coaching, all kinds of coaching. How men ruin coaching. Brenda has a fabulous interview with Ali Quinney, and we will be discussing some positivity and joy in sport. But before we go there, let's talk about Gillette Me Too advertisement. <laughs> Tell me your thoughts and how full your mugs of male tears are, my friends. Overflowing. They're overflowing, Shireen. <laughs> in the best way possible. I could watch it all day. The men sad about this. <laughs> Lynn's. 
Well, okay. <laughs> First of all, I do have to quote my editor, uh, Jason Lincolns at Think Progress, who wrote a piece this week that was like, by the way, everyone, Gillette's not really trying to sell uh, us on fixing toxic masculinity. It's just trying to sell razors. <laughs> like, I I have a problem with all brand, like, wokeness. Like, I think it can be overdone. But it was entertaining to see the backlash this week for men who were horrified at just this small suggestion that maybe they act a tiny bit better. <laughs> Um, but I guess, do, do we want to recap, if, in case anyone missed it, what exactly this advertisement was, Shereen? Sure, absolutely. Um, Brenda, I don't know if you want to do this. Do you want to do a recap? Because I think your synopses of everything are brilliant. <laughs> well, it's really short. It shows a bunch of uh, boys behaving badly and bullying up until men, you know, in, in a business setting, cutting women off. And then it, it has this sort of suggestion in it that somehow, um, no, it's not a suggestion. It's pretty pretty forthright, I guess, mm-hmm. that yeah. that men should stop being sexist and also shave. And, and um, intervene. <laughs> There's a lot of intervention in the commercial. Yeah, yes, yes. That, that, that yeah. It shows a kind of alternative model as well. Of, of how men could behave. I, I guess I'm just, I saw it maybe twice, and I just am riled that it's controversial. Yeah, I mean, that's what's so, I like it. I mean, yeah, I have I this, didn't... I mean, capitalism is capitalism, and Gillette's going to make a commercial one way or the other. So if this is what they've decided to do with it, like, more power to them. Uh, I loved it. There was my favorite tweet about it. I think it was the only thing. I think I RT'd it was a guy named James Hamblin, and he wrote, quote, there's no perfect test for the level of insecurity where masculinity becomes toxic, but basically it's when you feel personally attacked by that Gillette ad. And I just thought, <laughs> <laughs> like, that's, that's perfect. I mean, people that are taking, that get upset at that suggestion, the way that Brenda described it is perfect. It's like being nicer. Like, you're upset that a commercial asked you to be a nicer man. Uh, it just shows how pervasive how men just expect to like get away with shitty behavior and not be called on it. And I loved all the commentary around like men being mad that a commercial is telling them how to feel and act as if like all of commercials do not exist to tell women how to feel and act. Like how would you, how would you feel ladies if a commercial told you how to feel? It's like not so fresh. Yeah. yeah, Like they literally tell us to clean out vaginas. Like without, I mean, just, like, anyway, it, for me, one of the funniest tweets was uh, Dr. Lou Moore um, had quote tweeted a picture of someone who put their razor in the toilet saying this is what they were going to do. And he just wrote, this is some of the stupidest shit I've ever seen. <laughs> and for me, that was so funny because it was like, why would you put a razor in the like? what is wrong with you? Like amongst many things, it was just, it it was, it was some comical relief, but it was also like just the amount of enraged men and like this feigned horror and, and, and sort of insult was just ridiculous. I I do hope it, I would, I mean, I hope that it runs. I, I, you know, I see it on the internet. I'm like, is this actually going to be on television in opposition to things like the Super Bowl, like places where we actually find, issues with toxic masculinity, then to me, it'll be more than just, you know, a shock campaign that we all talk about on Twitter. So that'll be interesting to see.
Brenda, can you take us into our first segment on coaching, please? So the coach I was thinking about, I, I thought a lot about coaching um, this week. And as far as I can tell, the coach is pretty revered in every sport. You know, the idea that a coach can change yeah. teams, clubs, individual players, lives in profound ways. But in each of those sports that I was trying to think through, the coach works very differently. So I know this is obvious, but in basketball and U.S. football, coaching has a much more hands-on component during the games than, let's say, soccer or football. And one of the most revered coaches in global football this week is Marcelo, well, not this week, is Marcelo Bielsa. I, I don't know how familiar he is to listeners. Currently, he's with Leeds United and most famously turned the Chilean national team from unknown to one of the world's best. His, there's books on him, you know, just books and books and books. And there's people like Pep Guardiola that will say, I don't care if he ever wins a game, he's the best coach of all time. And his philosophy is attacking, pressing, never speculating, possession, aggression. And the issue is that most people think technically he has the best philosophy, but he actually wears players out. That there's players can't do what he wants. So when teams tend to lose, mostly people think it's because he they're exhausted. Not because of his tactics, right? That just just we don't have the human capital to do what he wants <laughs> so it's really interesting but anyway a loco as bielsa is called he's argentine was caught doing a bit of spying this past week mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. it's opened up a whole lot of feelings about coaching you know just in in the media last week we talked to the rooney rule and the nfl this week there's been a series of troubling accusations of abuse perpetrated by coaches And it's just really an interesting mystique around coaches. I think that's partly why it's been so difficult for women to break into coaching. And I just want to mention that women are not usually given the opportunity also to write about coaching. Not only to be coaching, but during this Bielsa story, I didn't see any women reporting on his press conference. So there's a notion that women can't understand coaching enough to do it and not even enough to write about it. And so it's been been kind of an interesting week. I just wanted to sort of segue. There's a lot going on in terms in terms of the coach as a as a subject. Yeah, uh, thank you so much for that, Brenda. I was following Bielsa and the memes and the and the uh, you know video clips of his presser, and he basically he he when he announced his presser, there was two opinions in the football world. One was that he was going to resign. Because it's just considered non-camaraderie like to go and spy on your opponent. But he has admitted that he does it. And he actually set up a PowerPoint presentation <laughs> with an I don't give a fuck <laughs> attitude, which was like, so he's basically like a hero. And then he went, and this is my favorite Well, because video. he's basically telling everybody how to beat uh, opponents. Yeah, he is. And, and I think that there's some transparency and he's doing, he's basically unprecedented. This is unprecedented, particularly in a very stuffy league like the Premier League that, you know, sort of touts itself on its traditions as draconian as they may be. But uh, so he goes up to Zidane and he's like, I just want to give you some advice if you want to have a discussion about the technical training. And I was in awe at this video. Like this is you know, Zidane, and it, he was just, it's lovely. you know, It's a lovely deal. video. So it's, it's from a, a while ago, and it resurfaced, um, and it's just lovely to see Bielsa mentoring Zidane, and Zidane accepting it. 
Yeah, and I mean, this is what I love about you. We rarely see that type of humility in coaching. And it's just, it was really, and you know, I love anything with Zidane, except if he ends up going to you. Yes. Just what what do you, what are your thoughts? Uh, I really liked what Brenda said in the intro about, uh, in her intro about uh, how we think about coaching. I talk about this. I wrote about this not that long ago about how we hold up coaches. Like we assume that they are good people simply because they coach. But uh on the gendered aspect of that, like I think it's really interesting to think about how we code coaching as masculine, that we hold up borderline or even abusive behavior uh, as good. And, you know, you can't but think about someone like Bobby Knight, the famous uh, basketball coach who used to throw chairs and scream in his players' faces and uh, that kind of behavior as good. Like that, that that's what coaching should look like. And... That, that just listening to Brenda talk about that idea of like the women don't get to coach and that part of this we can't imagine them as coaches and I do think it's because we have a really set idea of like what it not just what they should look like but how they should behave and all those behaviors um, that we tend to hold up as good uh, we also code as masculine so then you're breaking through all that stuff as well as sort of all the other gender things that come along with that and I don't know I have to sit with this but that really got my head, my mind spinning. Lindsay? <laughs> yeah, I think uh, it's fitting that we started this conversation with a, this, this episode with a conversation about toxic masculinity. Mm-hmm. And I think that coaching itself uh, um, has taken on so many of the characteristics of toxic masculinity and become almost like a harbinger for it. And, you know, mm-hmm. of course... I'm sitting here um, fully paying attention to this episode, but also keeping an eye on the Australian Open because it's tennis time, and I'm always keeping an eye on the the Australian Open. And one thing that's really stuck with me this week is how last week we talked about Andy Murray saying goodbye to tennis and, you know, possibly playing his last match. Uh, Go back and listen to last week's episode. It was a very happy one. Um, But (laughs) one of the things that really get... uh, it, it inspires me so much because Amelie Moresmo, who he hired to be his coach, um, you know, it was a huge deal. You know, top tennis player hires a woman to be his coach. And she now is not only coaching the France Davis Cup team, um, you know, since he's been gone, but she's now coaching Lucas Puy, and who's in the fourth oh. round here. Oh. So she's still around as coach. So Andy Murray making that one decision to hire the coach to hire a female coach has now given her and she of course she might have gotten it everywhere but it just takes this one person um often making changes and thinking outside the box and thinking about coaching in a different way that isn't tied to toxic masculinity that can really change things so i think it's really cool that we get to see a different part of andy murray's legacy on display here at this Australian Open. Um, And I also want to give a shout out to, and excuse me to, um, excuse me if I butcher this name is what I'm going to say, but I think it's uh, MK Wubenhurst who became, so she's the first female coach in the top five tiers um, of German football. And so she hasn't even coached in the first 
um, match. But I think this goes back to show what Brenda was saying, which is the fact that, well, it's mostly men who are covering sports media. So then it's mostly or, or not mostly men in sports media. So who are at these press conferences, who are dealing with these issues of gender and coaching, right? Who are kind of influencing these, um, who are covering cases of toxic masculinity and coaching and not calling it out as such because they might not see it as such. And then they're also the ones who are interviewing these women when they get the rare opportunity to be coaches of men's teams. And they don't know what questions to ask. So in one of her first press conferences, a German newspaper, Welt, asked her how she dealt with walking into the locker room and asked her if she had to make sure her players were covered up. So just like this was an actual question in a, from a German newspaper. And she very deadpan just said, of course not. I'm a professional. I pick the team on penis size. It's so good. It's so it's amazing. So we just like, but it just, it just doesn't that just get to everything. Like, sum it all up there. Like, and I remember when Amelie Resmo first started coaching Murray, there was all this talk of, well, how do you guys talk in the locker room? You know, she can't come to the locker room. And Andy Murray was like, I walk outside the locker room. <laughs> talk there. <laughs> like, it's not that big of a deal. Well, Linz, I love what you said about, you know, Andy Murray's legacy and how, you know, amplifying and having a woman in that position can change things. And that's something I just wanted to touch upon quickly. Haley Carter, who we've had on the show, assistant coach of the Afghanistan women's team, um, actually tweeted this out. And she actually mentioned that the U.S. licensing has their course and their, the U.S soccer pro license has 10 people taking this course right now but not a single participant is a woman that ussf sent and nor is it any of those 10 people are those who coach women so when we talk about you know making change like this is something that could be considered small but there i find it very hard to believe that in the entire country of the united states of america they couldn't find one woman to be interested in this licensing course and like that moving forward says a lot it says how we value women as coaches and in leadership roles you know etc etc um i don't know jess yeah i just wanted to add one last thing and this builds on a lot of work that Lindsay has been doing over the last year or so uh one of the big discussions and you know, of all the things that have come out of the Nasser stuff uh, and reforms to like Olympic style sports, like one of the big things is coaching, uh, that there are, you know, problems with how on the youth level, right, uh, they regulate coaches and uh, deal with abusive coaches and coaches that have relationships with their athletes. Um, I, yeah, I mean, that this is just we are I feel like maybe we're always in moments and I dismiss them but like feels like we're at a moment just in general where we are really reevaluating uh the role of coaches and the leeway that we give them and how we think about them uh in relationship to their athletes and um the the potential for harm and we have to constantly remind ourselves um about the way that gender plays into this and affects us, you know, also, as we talked about last week, as Brenda mentioned, race as well. Um, and so, yeah, it just feels like it's everywhere right now. 
Um, I just want to end this on a positive note because I'm trying to be really positive. There was a tweet that came out this week of by Michael Mulford, and he, it was just a photo of Jenny Busek, um, who is this Mavericks assistant coach, sitting with Becky Hammond, who is a Spurs and Antonio Spurs assistant coach, and they were just chatting. And this is the NBA two female assistant coaches. It was just, it gave me life and I think it was important and I would like to share it with y'all because it was great. And, you know, I just stand Becky Hammond. But anyways, that's about it. Next up, Brenda has an excellent interview with Ali Quinning. We are so excited to have with us today Allie Quinney on Burn It All Down. She's a PhD student at Florida State University who studies gender issues in esports and MMA. Welcome to the show, Allie. Hi. <laughs> so um, at Burn It All Down, we have been struggling because we want to keep up more with women in UFC, gender and MMA more broadly. And we are real novices, so we're excited to get a little bit of your insight into what's been going on. Could you just tell us a bit about the history of women in UFC or gender in MMA? Yeah, so MMA didn't really become a sport until 1993, and at this time there were no women's MMA bouts on the MMA cards. Um, and then in 1995, the first ever women's MMA tournament took place in Japan. And then in 97, the first recorded women's MMA competition in the United States took place. And then as the sport continued to grow um, in the early 2000s, women, women's MMA started to come into the scene a little bit more. So in 2006, a major MMA promotion called Strike Force promoted its first uh, women's MMA bout. And then in 2009, that same MMA promotion, Strike Force, um, had its first main event, had its first women's fight as a main event. What do you think is responsible for like 2011? That's fascinating what you're saying. So just in that short period of time, do you think anything particular happened? So Dana White has a history of saying things will never happen in the UFC and then shortly after they happen. So it seems to be a common occurrence in the UFC, if not like a promotional strategy. And then on top of that, also in March 2011, the UFC's parent company, Zufa, bought Strikeforce, which already had women fighters. And then um, later in 2011, Ronda Rousey came into the scene and really started to promote herself in sexual in sexualized ways, which um, I would argue is how the UFC was hoping to promote women's MMA. So today, do you think, I mean, are many of these women coming from the ranks of, I know some of them have experience in judo. Where are they, where are they kind of coming from right now? Where's their training? Um, I think that's one of the that's one of the things that I love about MMA. Um, your training doesn't have to be in one particular area. It can come from anywhere. And then your um, your unique skills from where you started, whether it's in judo, whether it's in Brazilian jiu-jitsu, kickboxing, karate, any of those, um, your uniqueness due to your prior training is where the beauty comes out in the sport, I would think, I would say. Who do you think we should be, I mean, for those of us who are just totally ignorant of the basics of this, who and what should we be looking at right now? Who should we pay, be paying attention to? 
Obviously, Amanda Nunes. Um, that's very clear after her recent bout with Cyborg. Um, and I would also could you say, explain? Sorry, not to interrupt you, but could you explain a little bit about her and that recent fight? Yeah. So um, Amanda Nunes in at the end of December became the first woman to ever hold two um, championship belts in the UFC. Um, she also beat someone who, not completely across the board, but largely across the board, where like everybody was saying that Cyborg was going to win. Every she is an incredible fighter. They're both Brazilian, both from Brazil, um, and everyone was really just assuming it was just going to be another one of Cyborg's belts, or um, sorry, another another one of Cyborg's fights where. They promote it as being one of her toughest battles of all time, and then she ends up winning pretty effortlessly, right? It didn't end up working that way um, in the most recent fight because Amanda Nunes ended up winning the fight uh, within 51 seconds. So it was pretty incredible. Wow. Yeah. And I actually, What's an average time? What's like an average time of a fight? I've seen like two. <laughs> so bear with me. What would be like a normal time that you would have expected? I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't know off the top of my head what the average UFC or MMA fight would be, but it's really, it's different depending on what the matchup is. Really, I mean, I expected it to be. So I would probably be the worst sports better of all time because <laughs> I always just go with my heart when I'm like trying to predict who's going to win. I'm always, I always go for someone based on who they are as a person, what kind of like charity work they do, what kind of activism they do. So like I said, I would be the worst sports better ever, but I was really going with my heart. I was going with Amanda, but my head was saying cyborg because she's such like a, a massive fighter. Um, so skilled. Um, and Nunez was, she was, she is and was at the time the 135, the bantamweight champion, and she was moving up a weight class to fight mm. Cyborg to mm. for the 145 belt as well. So people okay. largely thought that Cyborg was going to win that fight, and Amanda Nunes winning it was a shock to most, I would say, including myself. But I was me and my sister like air hugged across the bar when that happened. <laughs> Why do you like Amanda so much? Um, I think I, I just love what she, who she is as a person, who, what she stands for. She was part of the first ever um, fight with two LGBTQ women in the, in the fighting each other. Um, I think that her, so her current partner is getting, has some success right now in the UFC as well. Some pretty recent success. And I just really like that it's a new type of fighter that that the UFC is really being, I would say, really being forced to promote now. Mm. And what is her background? What do, what sort of expertise does she come at this with? Uh, Nunes? Yes. Um, so she's Brazilian. She has, she's extremely well-rounded. Um, everyone was saying at first that Largely Brazilian jiu-jitsu is where um, her strengths were, but she's shown in very like various KOs and TKOs in first rounds in the last um, probably five or six fights that she's had. Um, 
she shows that she's a well-rounded fighter. She's not just a grappler. She's also a stand-up fighter, which is really what MMA is, is being well-rounded fighters. And who else should we keep our eye on? Um, I mentioned a little bit earlier, um, Rose Namajunas. Um, Rose is pretty young and she kind of, so she's been in the strawweight division, which is 115 since the beginning. Mm. Um, so that was 2013 is when strawweight, uh, women's strawweight division first came into the UFC. Um, but she kind of came out of nowhere with her, um, with her success when she beat Polish fighter, um, and who was a champion at the time, Johanna, um, everyone, it was a similar situation. Everyone thought that she had no chance of winning and she ended up winning that fight in incredibly. And then also won the, the second, um, the second fight. So against Johanna, so she really proved herself and really promoted in the same way as other fighters in her division until, um, till she won the strawweight, until she won the strawweight belt in 2017. Women from around the world are participating in this. It's a really global sport. I mean, as you said, two, two of the fights between two Brazilians, then we have Polish fighter. Do they face similar challenges in the sport or are there differences given that they're coming from different countries and contexts? Um, do you mean in general or like on like during fight week or? But in general. I think there's different um, advantages and disadvantages um, in every context, obviously. Um, if you're if you're coming in on fight week and you have a fight in Vegas and you're coming in from Brazil, that's obviously a disadvantage that you're going in that with um, in terms of time change, um, even differences in weather. But uh, in other countries, so I come from Canada where I've done um, some form of martial arts for most of my life. And it's not a matter of like living in a big city, that's where you're gonna succeed. There's fighters from my hometown of 150,000 people who are in the UFC. Um, so it's, it's not a matter really of like where you come from or anything. It's a matter of like who's behind you and what the team is behind you, I would say. Um, and how you can prove yourself through that, really. And then once they're in the UFC, what sorts of, I mean, you mentioned the sexualization of players and, and Rousey's involvement in, in some of those really, like, ambivalent sort of circumstances. What, what do you think today are some of the challenges facing women in, in UFC fighting? I think that, there are some challenges with some women, um, more so with others, and that specifically has to do with the very clear sexualized marketing um, that's going on in UFC and just sport in general, really. Um, obviously, the UFC wants to promote women who they think their audience wants to watch. And recently, Amanda Nunes even or last year she even came out saying that she doesn't fit the profile of what a UFC champion would be. And, but now that she's proven herself, um, along with, I would say that cyborg, it's the same thing with cyborg. Um, women are having to prove themselves 
extra to be able to be promoted if they're not fitting like the character or the archetype of a UFC fighter, a female, a woman who's a fighter that the UFC wants to promote. So they have to force the UFC to believe in them, to support them as Nunez did. They didn't have a chance or didn't have a choice. They had to promote her because she's incredible. She proved herself as a great fighter. Um, and I think that that's really the difference between uh, what she did and what someone like Rousey um, had done. And so when you say they don't fit the archetype of a UFC fighter, you mean they're not explicitly hetero and feminine or what yeah, would that it, archetype look like? Well, that that's exactly it. So um, when Nunes was talking about this topic, she, she even said like they want, she said blondies, they want cute little girls who fight and take pictures and post on social media. And that's not something that she was willing to do. So then she had to take a different route. She had to prove herself first. So it sounds like there's some racialized ideas of femininity too. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. I would definitely, <laughs> I would definitely say so. How, how would you say so? Is it just that the, what's considered to be pretty or marketable is always the white woman? Um, I mean, I would, I would say so. Yeah. Or the white woman or the woman who's willing to park to post pictures on social media, um, certain types of pictures on social media. So we have someone like Paige Van Zant, who until recently was a um, 115 pound fighter. Um, she is blonde hair, blue eyes, very small, um, likes to take pictures of herself in bikinis. Um, she is um, makes a lot of posts on social media about her religious views. Um, so she's kind of like the, the perfect um, fighter for the UFC that the UFC wants to promote. And in turn, she's also had incredible fight opportunities that didn't really, I would say, I would argue don't match up with her skill. And there's evidence to show that the UFC uh, tries to pad her record as much as they can. So, for example, on January 19th, Paige Van Zandt, um, despite have, coming off of two losses, despite coming off of um, a year out of fighting because of surgery, uh, she was paired up with Ostrovich. And she ended up beating Ostrovich by submission uh, by armbar. And this is this would be an exciting occurrence in any other situation, but it kind of rubs me the wrong way a little bit because, because of the context. So um, Paige Van Zandt, before January 19th, had seven UFC fights. And then her opponent, Ostrovich, um, January 19th was her UFC debut. So there are major differences between um, the skill level and the experience level that both those fighters had, and it seems a little bit um, suspect to me, right? So it seems as though they are marketing this fighter um, differently than they're marketing other fighters because of um, what Dana White would call the it factor or what um, I would call um, her how she markets herself and how she sexualizes herself. Okay. And so who, who is their audience? Um, I don't know. I don't have any exact, um, figures for this or anything, but, um, their audience from what I've just seen, like anecdotally, I know that their audience is not just, um, straight white men, right. Between 18 and 34 years old. Right. Um, so many women watch the UFC, so many women, um, from 
so many different countries, women who are a part of the LGBTQ community, women who are not. Um, there is mm-hmm. a very diverse audience here. And I don't think mm-hmm. that the UFC is tapping into all those audiences. And I'm not sure if that is unintentional. And so what does it mean to you as someone who's spent a lot of your life in MMA to see this sport look like it's about to explode? I think it's a it's good and bad. It's amazing. And there could be some negative implications of it as well. I mean, I haven't looked up in this for a few months, so it could be different now. But last time I checked, you, um, MMA was... Um, and there's in the talk, there's talks about MMA becoming an Olympic sport. So the sport is huge and it's not going to stop growing. I don't think. Okay. Well, thank you so much for helping us wade through some of our like very first, you know, moments with this. We're late to the game, obviously, but Allie Quinney, we thank you very much on Burn It All Down. Thank you for having me. Jessica, would you like to talk to us about joy? Yeah, that that would make me happy. Uh, so Lindsay made a joke <laughs> last week. Lindsay made a joke earlier this episode about how burn it all down can turn even a light subject into a heavy one. <clears throat> but I think this week, I think we can do it. I believe in us. Uh-oh. Uh, <laughs> we can do it, Brenda. We okay. can do this. All right. So this week, the world fell in love with UCLA gymnast Caitlin Ohashi's recent floor routine at a collegiate competition. I'm not going to try to describe all of the moves she does, because honestly, you should pause this right now and go watch it. You will feel better after you watch this. (laughs) She is radiating pure joy the whole time. She is having fun. The music is great. And her teammates... Uh, her teammates are dancing with her on the sideline. The entire team in sync, having the time of their lives. I can tell you on the video that I watched, that was at um, the 39-second mark. So if you need to just fast forward right to it. And the gymnastics excel- itself, well, I'll just tell you that Ohashi got a 10.0 on that routine. So literally everything oh, wow. about it is perfect. It is wonderful. So we thought it'd be fun this week to think about fun moments in sports, ones that have sparked joy in us. I think one thing about this is that sports is most of the time fun, right? So in general, the reason that I and I assume all of us spend so much time thinking about this and writing about it and podcasting about it is because we just love watching sports like that alone gives us joy. Right before we started recording, I was watching Sloane Stevens play in the Australian Open. What a cool, fun thing to wake up to in the morning. Um... Though I want Sloane to win, and apparently it's very tight, and I don't know if she's going to pull this out. Um, But one thing about Ohashi's performance that helps elevate how good you feel when you're watching it, I think, is that it's isolated. Like, you don't see her competitors. You don't see... You only see her. You see her work. You see her joy. And when I was thinking about that aspect of it, it reminded me of Mirai Nagasu, the U.S. figure skater, when she hit her triple axle at the Olympics last year. And I know when, like, when I'm rationally thinking about it, I understand that she was competing and that there were competitors and and all that stuff. But that moment, it was just her on the ice against herself, seeing if she could do something almost no other woman has done. And then she fucking did it. And then she skated beautifully for the rest of the program. And then I know we've talked about this repeatedly on Burn It All Down, but that smile that broke on her face when she finished, like, just even now thinking about it, I'm so happy But 
I said all that because I the sports moment that I want to talk about um, did have a loser. <laughs> and I think that's one of the hard things about sport um, when I think about it. But as a spectator, I remember how exciting and how amazing the entire thing was. So for me, one of these moments of joy in sport, it was the semifinals of Wimbledon in 2009. This will surprise no one um, that knows anything about me. Serena Williams played Elena <laughs> Dementieva. The match oh, went on. No, for... this was heartbreaking. No, it was what? No. Like oh. as a as a fan, oh. it was amazing. Like oh the match went it on. It was Dementieva. She she needed this moment for her career so much more than Serena. Oh, I'm sorry, you're breaking my heart. <laughs> it's Demi. It's Elena Dementieva. I love her so much. Okay, keep going. Sorry. So the match went on for almost three hours. It was two hours forty nine minutes, and was probably it's probably still. The longest women's semifinal in the open era. Serena saved a match point in the 10th game of the third set. And here's how Christopher Cleary wrote about it, about that particular point for the New York Times a decade ago. Quote, down by 4-5, 30-40, on her serve in the third set of this Wimbledon semifinal on Thursday. She pushed forward to the net. Dementieva sprinted to her left and hit a backhand passing shot cross court that Williams cut off with a backhand volley that clipped the net and landed for a winner. The entire match, almost three hours, was incredible. High-level tennis, it was full of drama. It's the kind of match where you're, like, holding your breath almost the entire time where you seriously don't know who's going to win until the final point is played. Like, my heart pumps just thinking about it now, and I feel so lucky that I got to watch that live as it was happening, that we as fans get to see moments like that and and remember them and, and feel it. And so... I mean, I feel weird saying this now, but it was a pure joy sports moment for me when I think back on it. What about you guys? Wins? Yeah, sorry. I didn't mean to hijack your segment, but I think it just does show how different moments mean different things. You know, joy is not a a uniform thing. And, of course, I love Serena. I just, when I think of Dementieva and I think of that match, uh, I think of how much I just feel like I wanted I wanted it for her because it was she was just such a great player and such a great person, and um, and, and that just really does show you like there's always two two sides to every story. But I know what you mean about watching these these matches and watching these players compete and just feeling so blessed that you have the opportunity to do that. I think. You know, for me, it is always those, you know, it, it's the moments that I think of the the happy, you know, winning, um, improbable winning moments, I think, are the ones that spark the most joy in me. I mean, one of the, the sports moments that I've rewatched the most over the past decade is the uh, men's um, – Relay in the 2008 Beijing Olympics and swimming where Jason Lezak in that final leg had that amazing comeback to keep Michael Phelps's gold medal streak alive. And of course, if you're a, a fan of the French team, like that is a heartbreaking moment. But as an American, I remember watching that live and it was just, it, you know, when he took the water, it just seemed like there was no way that he was going to be able to make this comeback. And then he did. And then to see just the joy of the teammates and of Michael Phelps is just like unbridled joy and just the celebration. And it just like culminating in moments like that, that that were like the improbable meets the 
insane amount of hard work that these players have put in, these, these athletes have put into making these moments possible. Uh, it's just always so much fun to go back and kind of relive those moments in time. Just like I'll go back and relive, you know, Caitlin's routine over and over again, because it's just, it doesn't make sense that all these things should be able to happen at once on a court. Um, another moment for me that just sparks pure and unadulterated joy is after Marianne Bartoli won her really improbable Wimbledon title and she just goes sprinting to her box. She dropped her racket and she just like all out sprints to the corner for her box. And just like that sprint was joy like that. Just like it should be in the, uh, in the dictionary next to joy. So those are some moments that I really, I really do think of. But of course, if you're a big fan of, you know, the, of, I believe it was Sabine Lisicki who Bartoli met, uh, you know, watching that final, that's, that's not a moment of joy for you. You know, that's a moment of devastation. And maybe that is what makes something like, um, you know, gymnastics and uh, figure skating where the athletes do get these moments where it's just them, where, yeah, they're in a competition, but they get these standalone moments on the stage where their their competitors aren't visible that make it so much easier to kind of associate those moments with pure joy because you're not seeing the heartbreak at the other end. It's not um, one-on-one battle. Um, thanks so much for that. Mine is a bit something I've sort of carried with me for a really long time in terms of joy, in terms of joy while in the midst of competition. I've always been a huge fan of figure skating. And one of my favorite couples of all time were Ekaterina Gordiva, Katya Gordiva and Sergei Grinkov mm-hmm. in their ice mm-hmm. dance. And it, you know, for those of you that are old enough to know, <laughs> remember, Sergei Grinkov and Ekaterina Grudeva had skated together since they were very young. And this Russian couple was beautiful. They ended up actually getting together and getting married and having a baby. And then, oh my God, it was really tragic in 1995. Sergei Grinkov actually died on the ice of a heart attack. He was very young, very healthy, but it was one of those completely random things. And she was on the ice with him. And it was just an absolutely heartbreaking story. But when they used to skate together, there was this... He was much taller. She was very petite and he was very tall and he used to just lift her up and then when he would bring her down on the ice and sort of move, his lips would graze her lips. And it was just done so magically and so beautifully that there was joy and love all like just sort of surrounding them like this halo enveloping the two of them on the ice. And it was riveting to watch. It was so beautiful and you sort of had this hope for whatever I mean you know for possibility for sport for the grace that they had for the love that they were sharing with the world I remember actually crying when I found out he had died and I was I was sort of trying to figure out why I was so upset I was like why am I crying about this Russian athlete I don't know anything about but I did because I had watched them for so long and I had sort of been a part I felt that I was a part of their journey so that's something I still carry with me in terms of absolute joy it's it's a very specific and I know you all will be wait a minute Shireen how come you're not talking like soccer or hockey but for me this was one thing in my mind that exuded joy and fun and happiness and I wanted to share that Brenda 
It's very bold of you, Shereen, to put me last on this segment. <laughs> <laughs> half last full, Brenda. Half last I have full. a million of these moments. I really do. Um, but this week, it's interesting because it's a very old sports matchup that I just watched for the first time. And I knew what was going to happen. It's Rumble in the Jungle, 1974, Ali versus Foreman. And I've read about the fight for years, but I've never had the stomach to watch it. And I'm researching an article on black boxers in Argentina, so I'm thinking about boxing for the first time, and I've had to um, familiarize myself by watching quite a lot of boxing, which I just don't have the stomach for. And so 1974... Ali had lost the belt seven years before for his refusal to fight in Vietnam. Foreman, at 25, just looked so the better competitor, Um, in great shape, an overwhelming favorite. Ali is, I I think, 32. Uh, It's fought in Zaire. And basically, he has the the rope-a-dope strategy. I'm not sure if you've... You've probably all heard of this but me. And so basically he's just draining Foreman by covering himself for the first two rounds. Like he just, he leans back on the ropes and just lets him hit him. And you're just, you're just watching it and I'm just like screaming and I know he's going to win. I know he's going to win, but I'm still like, I'm like on the edge of my seat and I'm like, stop, like, like, stop, like hit him. You know, I'm like screaming. This is long before Foreman like had grills and shit. Like he's like really scary like in this fight and you're just watching it and, um, and you're, you're just on the edge of your seat and it's amazing. And he just drains Foreman. Like, like you can tell, like, fourth round, you know, he's just, he's got no more energy. And Foreman said later that right before um, Ali knocks him out, he whispers in his ear, is that all you got, George? Oh. And, and, George, and George Foreman said, I knew then that he had duped me. Like, this was, he's, oh. he's a brilliant fighter. And Ali just, like, he just, like, takes this breath, and you see a five-punch series at Foreman, and I can't believe how happy I am as I'm watching it. I'm like, I hate boxing. I hate punching people, right? And here, here I am, like, watching this. I'm like, yes, go Ali. <laughs> like, you vindicate yourself and war-resisting, and you're awesome, right? So anyway, now I would just like to mention a Kentucky airport's going to be named for him. So haha, in your face, Mitch McConnell. And and it's a ton of joy. If you have a chance to watch that fight again, if you haven't, I'm probably the last person in the world. It was amazing. That's awesome. That's I, I mean, I just um, I just wanted to add that I'm really happy for the segment that we see joy and some one person's joy can be another person's sadness, and that's what sport is. But we can all agree in one thing, and I I don't usually ever speak for anyone else. I only speak for myself, but I can say that this team, the Burn It All Down team, gets a lot of joy out of Serena Williams' outfits constantly. So <laughs> I feel that I'm safe to say that, that, you know, although there could be feelings about winning and playing and losing and this, just her clothes bring us a lot of joy. Her loveliness, her amazingness brings us a lot of joy. So on to our favorite part of the show, the burn pile. 
Jessica, can you go first? Yeah, please? of course. Um, so on Saturday night, last night, we record on Sundays. So on Saturday night, former NFLer Greg Hardy, that's it. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, was on the card for UFC 143. Hardy, you might remember, was initially found guilty of domestic violence a few years ago, but when it came time to go through the appeal processes, uh, the woman that he abused didn't want to participate any longer, as happens with so many domestic violence victims. So the state dropped the case. But to be totally clear here, she says that Hardy strangled her, threatened to kill her, dragged her by her hair, and threw her down on a couch covered in guns. Hardy was then signed by the Dallas Cowboys, who said repeatedly, repeatedly that they care about domestic violence victims. Hardy wasn't a great teammate, though, surprise, and he got into fights with coaches and players on the team, eventually getting cut. He's now doing mixed martial arts in the UFC, but here's the thing about UFC 143. Also on the card on Saturday was Rachel Ostevich, who had temporarily pulled out of her fight because in November, her husband, also an MMA fighter, beat her up and put her in the hospital. He broke her orbital bone and was initially charged with attempted murder, which has since been reduced to second-degree assault. But Ostevich decided she wanted to fight and said repeatedly in the lead-up to it that she was doing it for other victims so they could see her be strong in the face of the abuse that she suffered. So here we are. Hardy and Ostevich were on the same ticket. Dana White, the president of UFC and really just a very rich fight promoter and all-around asshole, chose to put them together and on the very first fight to ever air on ESPN. It was probably a really good marketing idea, which is super fucking disgusting, which is why White said, and I'm going to quote from the Washington Post here, quote, this guy paid his dues, referring to Hardy. He lost everything. He's been building himself up for the last five years. He's done everything a human being is supposed to do. When questioned on the optics of having Hardy fight on the same card as Ostevich, White replied, quote, well, then tune in and watch him get knocked out. If that's the way you feel about it, the guy deserves to make a living. There's so much to say about that, um, but mainly it's just garbage. So Ostevich lost on Saturday in the second round, submitting to an arm bar after a very good first round. Hardy, well, here's how Yahoo describes the end of Hardy's fight, quote, Quote, he was disqualified for illegally kneeing his opponent in the head while his opponent was on the ground. It was an obvious blatant foul that made the crowd gasp and the referee immediately stopped the fight. This is exactly what White was hoping for, I'm sure, when he signed Hardy on. I have nothing original to say about any of this. Uh, we just care so little about domestic violence victims and so much about money. This is a very blatant example of all of that, once again, around Greg Hardy. Burn it all. Burn. 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 Lens? So, um, here in the United States, we are in the middle of a extensively long uh, government shutdown. And uh, our horrendous leader decided that he would... Uh, invite the um, Clemson Tigers football team to the White House mere days after they won the national championship. Usually, these visits don't happen until weeks, typically months later. Um, so, first of all, that kind of reeks of PR. Why do we have to do the invitation so quickly and in the middle of a shutdown? Well, I'll tell you why. It's because Trump... <laughs> 
wanted to make a big show out of this. What he did is he went, because the kitchen staff, a lot of those people are furloughed. It's hard to really plan a big event when the government is shut down. So he decided to make a big show about going to fast food places and ordering hundreds of hamburgers and soggy salads and cold french fries and serving these on uh you know the lincoln gravy bowls and you know lighting candles around it and look there's a lot more serious things that we could be i could be throwing on the burn pile right now i understand but this was just such a blatant use of these athletes to try and gain pr points but because he doesn't know how to gain PR points, he went about it in the worst <laughs> way possible. And it was just like these pictures, they just make me feel like we're in dystopia. It's like Trump standing there looking the way he does, lighting next to people lighting candles on the like Lincoln gravy boats filled with dipping sauce from Burger King. Like, it's just the most ridiculous images I've ever seen. And once again, these athletes do not get paid. And now they're dragged to the White House for photo ops next to hamburgers. And it's just... I just want to throw uh, Trump, this government shutdown, and amateurism all onto the burn pile. Burn. Burn. Brenda. (laughs) (laughs) Mrs. Mrs. Brenda, can you go please? Oh, I'm sorry. I thought it was after you. Uh, Sure. This week... I would like it's it's good and bad. This is actually a mixed burn. It's weird because it uncovers something really um, cool that happened, but I, there's a whole lot of it I want to burn. Last week, it was reported that MLS team Minnesota United FC were interested in goalkeeper Augustine Rossi. Rossi has been with Boca Juniors, and he he's really I mean he's got like 45 games and 25 clean sheets with which um you know Shereen will appreciate as quite a record for a youngster uh he's Uh 23 years old um and another thing he has is a very troubling record of domestic violence and it's been pretty well uh documented by his partner at the time and so this this all came out in 2016 and i'd just like to say that the reaction of minnesota united fans the loons was amazing um they Mm -hmm. came out right away in obrigada to friend of the show eric silva who tipped us off about what was going on they put out a press release asking the club not to contract rosie saying you know we we just really don't want this to happen unless we have more information and this has some sort of um has been addressed and I just really hats off to the loons, right, um, for this reaction. But what I want to burn <laughs> is the reaction of other fans who thought that somehow they were being unreasonable. That somehow asking Minnesota United FC to look into quite troubling evidence of a domestic violence past was just too much. That they um, innocent until proven guilty was thrown around. Um, Argentine media got a hold of the story and said, this is a denuncia, like this is a, uh, old accusation. So it's old, you know, it happened in 2016, like what, like a century ago 
that same that same time period that you're looking at his record to decide that he's a good player, like that that same time frame that matters in his playing but doesn't matter in his character. So I want to burn the reaction of people who went after these fans for just a very human um, reaction to the possible contracting of Augustine Rossi. I want to burn it. Burn. 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 Um, just a little bit of a trigger warning, too, for this burn. Um, I wanted to actually touch upon the um, reports coming out of South Korea and in particular going to be citing uh, Park Chan-kyung's piece, which we'll link in the show notes, um, about the allegations and the rape culture and the culture of fear and violence that is very, very dominant in South Korea's sort of Olympic team, particularly with regards to their speed skating. We know that South Korea is actually very successful in speed speed skating. But what ended up happening was there was a young athlete who came forward and uh, she is 21 year old Olympic, double Olympic gold medalist, Shim Sook-hee. And she's accused, publicly accused her former coach of sexual abuse starting when she was actually 17. Now, Cho Jae Byom, who is the coach, he had been found guilty in September of physically assaulting her. And it's come forward that six other athletes are coming forward and we see when they look into history and they sort of probe what happens, they're actually athletes who quit in the middle of training camp because they had been physically abused. We're talking about mental abuse, uh, verbal abuse, physical, like literally kicking and punching the athletes to get them to perform better. Like it created such a culture of fear in those athletes that was just unimaginable. I can't imagine being, you know, training to be on the toughest stage in the world in your sport and then enduring abuse from your coach. It's just, it's just horrible. And as usual, burn it all down is in solidarity with these survivors and really hope that they get all the support that they need. But in addition to that, this system of misogyny and toxic masculinity that creates these, these horrible vacuum spaces uh, uh, that hurt athletes who are literally just doing what they love they're using their bodies they're testing themselves to the limits pushing themselves beyond physically possible in some cases and they're having to endure this i can't even imagine i want to burn that i want to burn that misogyny and violence and much love to the athletes now one of my favorite parts of the show is to amplify and highlight incredible folks in sport. So honorable mentions for Badass Woman of the Week. First of all, all the athletes at Ski Cross World Cup in Idrifjall, Sweden. Jasmine Paris becomes the first woman to win a 268-mile Montana spine race and which is an ultimate marathon, and she actually pumped breast milk as she was doing it. The British ultra runner Jasmine Paris is celebrating after becoming the first woman to win this grueling race along the Penine Way. What made the performance more extraordinary was that she shattered the course record by 12 hours while also expressing breast milk for her baby at aid stations along the route. And she works as a, at the University of Edinburgh researching leukemia. Oh so I know, right? Yeah, um, 
want to shout out Leslie Gallimore, the legendary Husky soccer coach of the University of Washington, who just announced that the 2019 will be her last season coaching the soccer team. Gallimore is currently the longest tenured soccer coach in the conference, having won over 250 games in her career. Um, want to shout out Khajdu Sambe, the first Senegalese woman who will be going to the Olympics, hopefully for surfing. She's based in Northern California, but says 6,000 miles away from Dakar, but says when she gets into the water, she's home. Um, want to also reiterate and shout out MK Wubenhorst, the coach of the fifth um, division Bundesliga squad, BV Kloppenberg, and she's a former player of the Kloppenberg women's side, and as Lindsay mentioned, she's one of the first women to coach a high-level men's team in Germany. But she's badass for actually, as Lindsay mentioned, um, saying very beautifully in a retort um, when someone asked her if the players would wear a siren on their heads so that she could notify the team when she entered the locker room. Of course not. I am a pro. I pick my team based on penis size. Um, Downhill skiing sensation Michaela Schifrin was named Team USA's best female athlete for December. She's also the first athlete to win 15 races in one calendar year, the most for any skier, male or female, ever. Misty Copeland uh, is set to break another barrier at the American Ballet Theater when she and Calvin Royal III make their debuts at Pierrette and Pierrot and Harlequinade at Sergstrom Hall on Friday. They're taking the ballet's secondary leads to the main character and it will mark the first time in the company's history that an African-American man and woman will dance a lead couple's roles. Um, Shout out to superstar Alex Morgan of Orlando Pride and U.S. Women's National Soccer Team. She was named the CONCACAF Women's Player of the Year. Can I get a drum roll, please? So actually, what I wanted to say is, can I get a what, what, but never mind. <laughs> you can, instead of drum roll. I've always wanted to say that. Um, and it's my birthday week, so can I get a what, what? 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 Okay. <laughs> Sorry, Shereen. It's okay. We're failing I love you. <laughs> no, you guys never fail me. Our Badass Women of the Week are Haley Carter and Kelly Lindsay for receiving the United Soccer Coaches Presidential Recognition Award from actually another honorable mention, Leslie Gallimore, for their work with the Avran Women's National Team. We are so proud to have had them on the show for a recent hot take and episode 43, respectively. Congratulations, ladies. What's good? Please, what's good? Let's start with Brenda, who's always a bubbling envelope <laughs> positivity. What's good? Um, Shireen's birthday is good. I'm <laughs> really happy Shireen was born, and you all should be too. And I'm happy she's happy because there's nothing better than seeing a woman fully realized and able to celebrate herself and not sort of hide in a corner during her birthday like me. Um <laughs> So same person. <laughs> so I love Shireen's birthday week. It's awesome. Uh, we got a bunch of snow in New York, and it actually looks beautiful. And it wasn't too much, and it wasn't too little. So that's really good. And I know it's a broken record, but what am I supposed to do? Lionel Messi right now in La Liga is on fire. And it is beautiful <laughs> to watch an average of a goal a game. He scored 400 in what 365 appearances or something and it's insane and so I love when things defy reason like that Jessica 
Yeah, so obviously the Australian Open. Uh, by the time y'all hear this, you'll know the outcome, but Serena Williams is going to play Simona Halep. I assume in the middle of the night tonight, uh, I'm considering getting up to watch it. I don't I don't want to miss it. Uh, I'm very excited about it. It's been a very fun tournament overall. Uh, I wanted to mention a podcast that I'm absolutely in love with. It's called Who Weekly. Like, there's a question mark after Who. It's ridiculous. Like, don't go listen to it thinking you're getting anything substantial out of it. Uh, it's about B and C celebrities, and they their tagline is, it's everything you need to know about celebrities you don't. Uh, and it really is. It, they just... Bobby Finger and Lindsay Webber are hilarious. I enjoy it deeply. And then I wanted to mention Sex Education is a show on Netflix. We just finished watching the first season, eight episodes. It's lovely. It will bring you joy. It will spark joy in you. Uh, so I highly recommend Sex Education. That was very good to me this week. Um, thanks so much, Brenda. You kind of took my what's good, but I'm still excited. It's my birthday. I love my birthday so much. Y'all know this. Um, it's on Tuesday, probably the day that this is getting uh, released because we record Sunday morning. Um, I'm also really, really, really excited for today. I'm going to go see the CWHL All-Star Hockey Game in Toronto. I'm going to be joined by Dr. Courtney Sito, who's been on our show, my friend Amina Mohammed, and Erica Ayala. So that is going to be awesome. Erica's also been on our show. She's a you know, women's basketball and hockey expert. So it'd be really, really nice to meet her in person. And we're going to have this little women of color crowd at hockey. So that'll just be really, really fun as well. So I've been really looking forward to this game for a while. And um, I'm going to, I've got big plans for my birthday. I'm going to get my car cleaned and washed. And that's very exciting for me. Yeah, it's really exciting. So that's about it. Lynn's. Uh, yeah, I am. The the tennis is always what's good. And speaking of that, I want to do a little self-promo for another what's good. Um, starting this week, I'm going to be joining the team for the Nine newsletter, which is a newsletter that comes into your inbox. Uh, up to this point, it's been Monday, Wednesday, Friday, Women's basketball one day, women's soccer one day, women's hockey the other day, and they're adding a day for tennis and a day for golf. So I'm going to be their women's tennis uh, writer. So please, everyone, go and subscribe to The Nine. Uh, Erica Ayala, friend of the show, is number another one of the writers who does the women's hockey roundup. And so I'm really excited. I got my start uh, in all of this as a tennis writer and have really been disconnected from it for uh, the past couple of years. So I'm really excited to have kind of an excuse to dive in on a weekly basis and also be part of this project that is trying to help build another infrastructure for women media in a, of women's sports. So, yeah, I'm really excited about that. That's it for this week in Burn It All Down. Although we are done for now, you can always burn all day and night with our fabulous array of merchandise at our Teespring store, including mugs, pillows, t-shirts, hoodies, bags. What a better way to crush toxic patriarchy in sports and sports media by getting a pillow (laughs) with our logo on it. Burn It All Down lives on SoundCloud, but can be found on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and TuneIn. We appreciate your reviews and feedback, so please subscribe and rate us to let us know what we did well and how we can improve. 
You can find us on Facebook at Burn It All Down, on Twitter at Burn It All Down Pod, or on Instagram at Burn It All Down Pod, or you can email us at burnitalldownpod at gmail.com. You can check out our website, www.burnitalldownpod.com, where you will find previous episodes, transcripts, and a link to our Patreon. We would appreciate your subscribing, sharing, rating our show, which helps us to do the work we love to do and keep burning what needs to be burned. On behalf of Jessica, Lindsay, Brenda, I'm Shireen. Thank you so much for being here.